many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us from those who, from the first, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. What else can I do but kneel and worship you? Lord, we gather today to honour and worship, to give thanks for your goodness and your kindness to us as individuals and as a church. Help us never to take anything that you've done and what you give to us for granted. We simply give you thanks this morning. And as we go into this time of anticipation, when people are getting excited about Christmas, we are excited at the coming of Jesus into this world, into your world, with all that that means. Help us to explore together that adventure, that wonder, and the way it changes everything. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sit down, everyone. And uh, you might want to open up uh, the Gospel of Luke uh, to chapter 1. Let's begin with a, a little um, quiz this morning. Some questions for you to think about. So if I ask you the question, who wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else? What would your answer be? You need to be loud. Remember, I'm a bit, little bit. Paul's an interesting answer. Is someone saying, look, um, Paul's the obvious answer, isn't it? You would think that because he wrote lots of the letters, but actually, verse by verse, the person who wrote the most is Luke. Um, More of that in a a moment. Um, Which of the four Gospels was the only one that was written by a Gentile? It's kind of going to become quite obvious. It was Luke. Of course it was Luke. Which Gospel tells us the most about the birth of Jesus? Shout it out. (laughs) Which gospel mentions prayer more than any other? Yeah, it's not, it really isn't rocket science. You know, it's really quite easy to pick up on this. I mean, it's true. Luke often mentions Jesus praying or teaching about prayer. Jesus prays at his baptism. He goes off to the wilderness to pray um, alone. He prays before he chooses the apostles. He prays for Peter that his faith wouldn't waver. He prays for his executioners on the cross. Luke also includes some of Jesus' teachings on prayer that we find nowhere else, like the parables of the neighbor at midnight and the persistent widow. In fact, Luke mentions prayer more than all the three of the other gospels combined. Luke is sometimes called the gospel of prayer. Some of the most beloved Bible stories are also found only in Luke, the prodigal son, the good Samaritan, the walk to Emmaus, and he also gives us the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the only parable where one of the characters is given a name. Another question, which doctor traveled with the apostle Paul? (laughs) 
Uh, the Gospel itself doesn't mention the name of its author, but the strong tradition through the centuries has been that it was written by Luke, a travelling companion of the Apostle Paul. If you read um, in Acts, you notice near the end, the narration slips from the second person to the first person. All of a sudden, instead of saying Paul got on the ship, it says we got on the ship. So whoever wrote Luke and Acts was with, was with Paul for some of his journeys. Colossians 4, Paul greets friends who might be reading the letter. Among this, uh, these folk are someone called Luke, the beloved physician. So Luke was a doctor. What a great calling that is to be a doctor. It was then as it is now. And to be sure, medicine was quite different. Uh, back then, it was a very different kind of uh, um, practice. Doctors weren't uh, always the kind of well-off, upper-middle-class people they often are now. They were more of an artisan class. They would have learned their trade by uh, apprenticing under other physicians. So it was a bit like being a blacksmith. If you wanted to be a blacksmith, you learned from someone who was good at blacksmithing. And uh, if you were going to be a doctor, then you became an apprentice to a doctor. But this Luke is also very literate. He's obviously a great writer. He's got a skill with words and a way of expressing things, um, which is a bit different from a lot of doctors today. If you ever see a doctor signing anything, you can never make out what it is that they're, they're writing down. Um, so he wrote well. And one of the things that's abundantly clear when we read Luke is that the entrance of Jesus into the world changes everything. That's kind of a focus for him uh, when he's writing his gospel, his story. It changes everything. So, for example, in Luke chapter 1, Mary praises God when she's pregnant with Jesus and she says that God is going to do what? He's going to lift up the lowly and cast the powerful from their thrones. This changes everything. Old man. Any old men in the house today? I count myself in this bracket. I applied for my bus pass this week. What a joy that I'm looking forward to. It will arrive next week. I'm very excited. Aged Simeon. Remember him? Luke chapter 2, takes baby Jesus in his arms in the temple and proclaims that he will be the cause for the falling and rising of many. The coming of Jesus changes everything. Or how about this, Luke chapter 4, Jesus comes out of the wilderness in the power of the Holy Spirit after his baptism and announces that the kingdom of God is at hand. Captives are going to be released. The blind are going to receive their sight. The oppressed will be set free. This changes everything. The gospel arrives in the person of Jesus. This changes everything. History is measured with letters. BC, which stands for? And AD, which stands for? Only it doesn't count anymore because we've changed it or someone has changed it. We now use BCE, which stands for? Before the Common Era. And what's the other one? Anyone know? 
CE, that's right, which stands for the Common Era. Although I've decided unilaterally that we're just going to change that and we're just going to make it BCE. We'll still use BCE and CE, but we'll say before the Christian era and the Christian era. Okay, so we're just going to take it back. Like many things, we just take back. Okay, but the history is marked at that point, the coming of Jesus, it's still marked by his coming because it changes everything. Everything has changed with the coming of Jesus. And so it's right that we begin Advent as we anticipate the coming of Jesus by contemplating this, by dwelling on this, and being reminded of this. We're going to have a baptism during Advent that reminds us that this changes everything. Jesus comes to change our lives. So let's take a few minutes this morning to look at these few verses from the Gospel of Luke, which kicks off everything. Luke writes in uh, this passage, the beginning of his gospel. You know, there are famous first words, aren't there? Words that are famous because of they begin something. And these are important words because they begin the gospel. Famous first words, something like, uh, how about, call me Ishmael. You know that famous first words, you know where that comes from? Call me Ishmael. Moby Dick is right. Well done, Peter, you get a gold star. Let's see if we can get them all. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. That's right. Well done. Tale of two cities. And then this one. This one's probably the, a more difficult one. All happy families are alike. <laughs> Shall I finish the quote? <laughs> all happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. It's probably one of the best beginnings of any novel, Anna Karenina by Leon uh, Tolstoy. And Luke's prologue, the beginning of the gospel, tells us about what we're about to read and how we approach this task. It's clear that Luke is writing in the interest of truth, the importance of truth. We live in a time when truth is a kind of movable thing, a movable feast, if you like, we're unsure what is true. We're told to beware of fake news. Be careful what you read on the internet because it may or may not be true. We don't even know that when we watch the news, even the glorious BBC that they're reporting will be particularly uh, accurate or, uh, or truthful. They now have a thing called BBC Verify where they're trying to show that what we've done, what we put out in our output, this is the truth behind it. And they're putting more money into trying to show that. Luke is concerned with truth. Now, our world has given up on the idea of truth. Maybe when we were younger, we, uh, we remember that the news, we would watch the news or listen to the news, and it would be telling us what happened. And sometimes things would have been told with a certain slant. It seemed to be at least a slant we all shared. You know, we kind of accepted that the news was true. But now, when we read news or we hear news, often it's the news of what has happened, but also it's almost like it's being shaped so that we, it's been given in a way that makes us, forces us to think about it in a certain way, what we should think about this news. So we have to be careful about that. 
And we live in a time of entitlement. We feel entitled to interpret truth in however way, whatever way we want to do it. So people will say to you, if you share your faith with someone, you say, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus, I believe Jesus came uh, into the world to save sinners, to rescue us from death and bring new life to us in this life and the next. And people will turn to you and often say, well, that's really nice. That's really lovely that you believe that. That's your truth. That's the truth that is for you. It's not the truth that is for me. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't come to take sides. He came to take over. That's why we talk about he is the king. He is, we often use the word the Lord. Very unfashionable and not very helpful or appropriate to people. Because who wants to have a Lord? If you have a Lord, you've got someone that's over you, that's in charge of you. Jesus comes not to take sides. He doesn't come to uh, make suggestions to us. He comes to be Lord. He comes to take over, to change our lives. And that is the big story that we share. And that's what Luke wants to share with the people who hear his gospel and read his gospel. There is an overarching narrative and an overarching story that changes everything. It's a spiritual reality. It's too vast. It's unknowable um, for any single faith system to have it all. That's what the world will, will say. We need all these different faiths. You know the story about the six blind men and the elephant? Six blind men and the elephant. And the story goes, there were six blind men who heard about the existence of elephants. And they always wanted to know what an elephant was like. And then one day they heard that there was a man with an elephant that they could go and inspect. So one blind man reaches out and grabs the elephant's tail and he says, Ah, an elephant is very much like a rope. And another blind man grabs one of the elephant's legs and says, Ah, an elephant is very much like the trunk of a tree. Another felt the side of the elephant. Ah, an elephant is very much like a wall. Another touched the elephant's ear. Ah, an elephant is very much like a fan. One grabbed the elephant's tusk. Ah, an elephant is like a spear. And another grabbed the elephant's trunk. No, an elephant is like a great big snake. So which one was right? Each blind man reported correctly from their limited experience, but they were also all wrong, their perspective being so limited. So it is, the moral goes, with God and faith. We only see a narrow part of the big truth. And that sounds great to the postmodern world that we live in. It sounds great. That's how we should be. We should operate like this constantly, just accepting everyone's version of the truth. That's how we should be. Spiritual reality is so vast and unknowable, we only have a part of it. And it seems like that's a humble posture to take in relationship to God, to the divine. It also seems to put everyone on a, the same level, the same level ground. It makes us feel good. It makes us feel good that we adopt that point. And even people within the Christian faith would say that's the way we need to operate in this pluralistic world. Maybe all religions are just different paths up the same mountain. But there's actually a seventh man in the parable in the story of the, the six blind men. There's the narrator, the narrator. He sees the whole elephant. 
when we tell this story, we actually make ourselves that seventh man. The presence of the narrator really defeats the purpose of the parable. The parable is actually a subtle faith claim that all faiths can be reconciled as touching different aspects of the same reality. But the parable fails to capture the truth. The truth claims of various faiths are often mutually contradictory. All faiths are basically the same. Some when people say that to me, I will always reply, yes, they're all the same in one particular aspect. They're all different. That's what they have in common. One person claiming an elephant is as big as a house and another saying it's so small it could fit in your pocket. If one is right, the other must be wrong. What if the elephant could talk about itself? What would it tell you about itself? In our faith, the Abrahamic faiths all are based on the idea of divine revelation. Islam, Judaism, Christianity believe that God has spoken and revealed a truth that has to be listened to, has to be heeded. If Islam's revealed claims are true, Jesus is a prophet ranking below Muhammad. That contradicts what Christian truth teaches about Jesus, that Jesus is unique. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, uh, he writes this. He chronicles his journey from uh, atheism to the Christian faith. And he writes this. He says, if you're a Christian, you don't have to believe that all the other religions are simply wrong all the way through. If you're an atheist, you do have to believe that the main point in all religions of the whole world is simply one huge mistake. If you're a Christian... You are free to think about all these religions, even the strangest ones, that they contain at least some hint of the truth. When I was an atheist, I had to try to persuade myself that, some, that most of the human race have always been wrong about the question that mattered to them most. When I became a Christian, I was able to take a more liberal view. But of course, being a Christian does mean thinking that, uh, that where Christianity differs from other religions. Christianity is right and they are wrong. As in arithmetic, there is only one right answer to a sum, and all the other answers are wrong, but some of the wrong answers are much nearer being right than others. So all truth belongs to God. We can find some truth in all religions. That's why we respect people of different faiths. We love them and we respect them. We want to listen to them and be in dialogue with them, but we don't have to reduce our faith to say it's just the same. My faith is the same as yours. No, it's not. You know, I can look at people who are Buddhists, Buddhist friends. It's a very common thing in our culture. People will say, now, I'm a, I'm a Buddhist. And you have to ask the question, what kind of Buddhist are you? And do you go to temple worship and so on? Do you, do you worship or are you just adopting some Buddhist ideas? It's interesting to dialogue like that. But I believe Buddhism has got some good ideas, some worthy ideas, but I'm never going to be a Buddhist. At the end of the day, Christians believe that God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus, his virgin birth, his life, his vicarious death on the cross for my sins, for your sins, for the sins of the whole world, his victorious resurrection. They change everything. They frame a new reality. And Dr. Luke believed that too. The entrance, into, uh, the entrance of Jesus Christ into the world is a game changer. The old order of things has been fulfilled and a new day has dawned. And at Advent, as we go to head towards Christmas, 
My prayer is that we get excited again. The over-familiarity of this story can make us just say it's Christmas time and the commercialization of it. We can lose the sense of excitement and wonder. So we begin Advent by reminding ourselves again that this coming of Jesus changes everything. As we look at Luke's words in these four verses, just think for a moment about what he's trying to communicate. Many have undertaken, verse 1, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Luke is aware of the other Gospels. For instance, Luke seems to have used the Gospel of Mark as one of his sources. 50% of Mark's Gospel is contained in Luke's Gospel, but Mark's Gospel is briefed and focusing on the things that Jesus did. Who is this man? is the question in Mark's gospel. But Luke wants to provide a bit more context. He's more of a storyteller and a historian. He's telling the story in more detail. Luke demonstrates, among other things, that Jesus didn't come to lead a rebellion against the Roman Empire. It was a big question that Christians faced as they evangelized the Roman world. Wasn't this Lord you are proclaiming crucified by the Roman government? Was he not a rebel against the Roman government? Luke takes a positive stance historically towards the, what was called the Pax Romana, the Roman government. He puts the story of Jesus in the context of the wider history of the empire. This Christmas, for instance, we will read that, the, that Jesus was born when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. He's concerned to focus that this is something that happened in history. It really happened. This life-changing, this history-shaping, making event happened at a certain point in history. There are many such references to the secular history in Luke and Acts. So he begins with that very clearly. This is a point in history that changes everything. And I want you to know this story. Verse 2, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were witnesses and servants of the word. In any court, there is nothing quite like the testimony of witnesses. If you want to know what happened, talk to the people who were there. Judges, sheriffs, know the importance of that. Luke bases his work on the evidence of eyewitnesses. It's just possible that Luke learned about the nativity of Jesus. How? How did he know? Well, maybe he talked, we don't know this, but maybe he talked, he interviewed some of the witnesses. Mary, maybe. He was able to say, Mary, tell me about when your son was born. When he mentions servants of the word, he's talking about the apostles and those who communicated the apostolic message. The gospels were written after epistles when people noticed that the apostles were passing away. They thought, we better get this recorded. So the stories would be heard and recited, oral tradition, and it was that point people realized, we need to get this right. We need to make sure that this is recorded. The Holy Spirit inspired people to make sure this was well recorded so that we're able to hear the story again and again and again and again and wonder, and wonder about the events that changed everything. There was urgency about capturing the remembrances of Jesus. You know, Jesus never wrote a book. Instead, he entrusted his, witness, his message to witnesses of his life and teaching. Luke was not one of those apostles, but Luke's gospel is apostolic and it captures the teaching of the apostles. And you know what? All of us who trust in Jesus have that same responsibility to pass on the message. It's not just the responsibility of the people who are up front on a Sunday, it's every single disciple of Jesus. 
that has that responsibility to pass on the message, just as Luke did, just as they were handed down to us uh, by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. That's us. We fall into that category. We get to be the ones that share the story. So over Christmas time and Advent, maybe we'll get opportunities to point to Jesus. Yesterday we had riding lights here. I was really nervous. I thought I don't. We, we had about twenty-nine tickets sold at the beginning of the week. I thought this is going to be a bit rough. I think, but we had nearly ninety. I think last uh, yesterday, and it was a brilliant play. It was very exuberant, very. Uh, fun, it was fantastic, the music and everything, and it was telling the story of some shepherds, but they were just random shepherds, and I was sitting there thinking, when's Jesus going to get a mention? And I kind of was a little bit worried about it, I thought, wow, this, this is maybe not going to be quite as strong, and then they, they, they shifted focus a little bit, and the end of it, they brought in Jesus to proclaim him, and it was done in a beautiful and a gentle, yet powerful way, I thought, just reminding us of the coming of Jesus and how it, he changes everything. And it reminded me, I need to take seriously the responsibility to make Jesus known this Christmas time with the people that I spend time with, the people that come visit, the people that I see. How am I going to do that? What are you going to give as presents to people that might just point folk to Jesus a little bit? Verse 3 says this, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Luke has done his homework. He doesn't rest on his laurels. He wants to find out. He wants to discover more. He wants to engage with the story. He wants to uh, discover all there is to know about it. He investigates everything from the beginning. He sorts through the many verbal stories and traditions about Jesus to try to get what really happened. And Luke states that it's important to, for, for him to write an orderly account. Putting things in the correct chronological order is very important to him. Other Gospels are not quite as interested in this. John, for instance, is organized around theological truths about Jesus. So he puts the, a triumphal entry in chapter 2 instead of the last week of Jesus' life. You ever notice that about John's Gospel? But it's making, it makes theological sense in that order. Matthew organizes his gospel around the teachings of Jesus. Thumbing through Matthew, you notice big blocks of red ink where Jesus is speaking. Luke follows Mark's basic chron chronology, but adds a lot of details that Mark leaves out. We, should, we probably should talk about the Bible's relationship with secular history. Our Christian scriptures are both a treasure for historians and scientists and a great frustration to them. The Bible for, is an invaluable tool for understanding history. Historians sometimes, a well-known historian that some of you know, um, tells students to be reading the Bible for the particular period of history that they, they, that they are studying, the importance of being, having the Bible in one hand and being able to read it. The Bible is an invaluable, history for, an invaluable tool for understanding history. It contains records that exist nowhere else as we talk about Luke, think about Luke's description of a shipwreck in the gospel of, uh, in the book of Acts, chapter 27 and to 28. It's regarded as one of the best descriptions of ancient maritime travel in existence. Our understanding of travel by sea in the first century would be much poorer without the details that Luke provides. And there are many uh, examples of the ways that uh, the Bible informs history. But the Bible also completely frustrates historians. The scriptures are interested in different questions that modern historians are, are asking. 
There may be a very significant person in world history that the Bible dismisses with just a line or two. The Bible was written to instruct us about God's faithfulness in the midst of human unfaithfulness. Its use of history is kind of selective. And the same is true with science. For years, science, scientists have been asking big questions of how and when the universe came to be. If you hand these uh, scientists the Bible, they will read that God spoke and it came to be, which might flummox some of them. It might satisfy the faithful, but it doesn't answer the questions they are asking. We have six days of creation, does nothing to go with a scientist's observation. When they read about the couple in the garden with the talking snake, that goes down really well. Is Genesis 1 to 3 true? Totally, I believe it is. I once got into big trouble because um, I was uh, speaking at a university mission, St. Andrews University, as it happens, uh, at a lunchtime meeting, and it was a Q afterwards it was a Q&A so a lot of non-Christians there. And um, the questioner asked the question, that question, is Genesis 1 to 3 true? Literally true. So my answer was this. Well, some Christians would take the view that the six-day creation is literal. It happened in six days. And others would say the six-day creation is a picture. It's a, a, a description of uh, who and why rather than how and when. And both of those views are legitimate Christian views. So I thought, done quite well. Dodged that bullet. Seemed like quite a reasonable kind of answer. Notice what I did there. I said there are two views, but I didn't actually say my own view. I should be a politician. Um, but two guys on the team came to me, Americans, came to me, and basically denounced me as a heretic for suggesting what I suggested, that that second view might be a legitimate view. Which I felt was a bit of a shame, but that's how it, how it went. But I still stand by that. It's a, a, a description, Genesis 1 to 3 is a description of the who and why of creation. Science asks when and how. But the creation passage is answering the question of purpose, something scientific inquiry can never provide. And so we need to be careful not to get caught up in all of that. It says in Hebrews 11, by faith we understand that the uniform universe was formed at God's command so, what, so that what is seen and, what, and was not made out of what was visible. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Hebrews 11 verse 3. So we don't pit faith and science against each other. Einstein once said, science without religion is lame. Religion without science is blind. Luke also addresses his gospel to someone called Theophilus. And this person is also mentioned in the beginning of the book of Acts. Who was Theophilus? We do not know. His Greek name means love of God. That's what his name means. Some have suggested that maybe Luke uses this name as a general term for believers in Jesus. But that story, that theory is not supported by his use of the title most excellent. 
This would be the customary way to greet a government official or someone of importance. It seems that Theophilus was a recent convert or at least an inquirer into Christianity. He maybe even donated the money for Luke to do all the hard work of investigating and compiling and writing his orderly and authoritative uh, biography of Jesus. But he's writing, so he's a patron in other words, he may have been a patron, but he's writing for Theophilus so that Theophilus knows this story in detail. Maybe Theophilus was one of these people that needed some detail to put flesh on the bones so that he would come to a place of faith. Some people need that. They need to be rigorous. And uh, we mustn't treat everybody uh, just in a blanket way. We need to recognize what it is that people need in order to come to Christ. Verse 4 says this, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Journalists, we've done historians, journalists are quite important, aren't they? Journalists are, um, they do this, the five W's and the H. You know what the five W's and the H are? Who, what, when, why, where, and how? Let's say that together. Who, what, when, where, why, where, and how? The questions every trained journalist asks. Something very unique happened at the coming of Jesus. God steps into our human history. Our faith, therefore, is inextricably tied to events that happened in first century Holy Land. In the coming of Jesus, the who, the what, the when, the why, the where, and the how all become part of our core message. The birth, the life, the teachings, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, they frame a new reality for us that everything has been changed. The claim Jesus Christ is Lord is all of these things. It's historical, it's theological, it's political, it's economic, it's scientific. Our salvation was accomplished through God's acts in human history. We can't know salvation unless we know the story. Luke says he's writing to Theophilus and us so that we might be sure of the things we have been taught. Our salvation has a past and we have a story to tell looking to what Jesus has done and maybe a personal story to tell about how he came into our lives but it also has a future. We're looking towards what God wants to do in the future. And that's what Advent is about as well. It's not just about the now. It's not just about Christmas time. It's looking to the future when Jesus will return. It has roots and it has wings. It brings life. What God did in the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus reverberates for the whole of history. And it changes everything. So this Advent, this Christmas, may God reverberate in a new way, in a fresh way in our lives. Invite him. Invite him to be with you, to teach you. Invite him to show you the great truths of Christmas, of the Advent of Jesus again. And may you know him in power, in love, and may you be humble enough to receive all that God has for you. Let us pray. Father, thank you that Luke couldn't wait to tell his story. May we be people who cannot wait to tell the story of the coming of Jesus. 
Help those of us who are jaded and tired and cynical and maybe even a little bit concerned about our own futures and uncertain of what lies ahead. Would you come, Lord, in the power of your Holy Spirit and challenge and encourage and inspire us again this Advent? We thank you for one another and what an encouragement we can be to one another and to others. May we have Jesus' names on our lips in this year, in this Advent. May we want to make him known by who we are, how we live, and what we see. And we thank you for the excitement that the coming of Jesus changes everything. Help us to rejoice in that great truth again. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.